Welcome to Machine Learning. Uh, this week has been really busy. Uh, spending a little bit of time looking at statistics and uh, in Python and DataCamp and uh, really enjoyed the uh, uh, training on that and I'll resume that. But I wanted to further understand some of the deep learning um, approaches that I was seeing and uh, so I went back and took a, another course on deep learning which was an intro to Keras and I found that to be real helpful um, and uh, I, last night I talked about uh, how to do the how to do categorical and uh, and um, uh, multiple outputs in Keras and uh, multiple layers, and I'm starting. You know, I'm starting to think that uh, a lot of the deep learning is a lot about the topology, and uh, kind of like a um, strategy for like how you're going to take uh, different types of networks and integrate them in through the deep learning network. And I, that's what I was. I'm starting to think about now is like. Uh, so I can take different types of machine learning classifiers, whether it's a support vector machine or logistic regression, logistic regression, or uh, linear regression. I can take those different classifiers and I can treat them and have them do small pieces of work that they're very good at um, and use those models and uh, feed that into the deep, uh, deep net and one of the things that I I mentioned yesterday that I've been thinking about is that could be a problem is, is that let's say you start building these complex networks uh, where you're, you're taking uh, one set of deep nets and, and uh, stacking them uh, with another deep net is kind of like this unwinding process when something goes wrong how do you know uh, what caused the what caused the problem? Um, will it will it be traceable? Will it be obvious what uh, network is uh, malfunctioning? And I think a lot. It is kind of like uh, that with the networks, hardware networks. Is you, you have to kind of figure out what subnet went wrong and where there's a problem. Is it the bridge? Is it the uh, gateway? Is it the router? And uh, each each one of those hardware pieces play a different role, and, and perhaps that's what uh, the networks will be done: is they will be partitioned, and uh, and each type will have a certain role. So when it malfunctions, you know that it has a certain signature, and you know where to go look. Uh, maybe there's uh, some outlier data that it's overfitting to that's causing uh, some anomalies. But remember that uh, the classic statement is is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And uh, we just it it just kind of was amazing when I was running the network. Uh, when you start, first start running the training, you do the fit. Um, there's always that kind of feeling of like, is this thing going to converge, or is it going to uh, is it going to you know throw lots of error and uh, not really be that useful. Uh, so that you know there's this question mark in your mind is you know how, 
what's going on. Well, if you're watching the the loss, uh, which would be the mean square error loss, and it's getting smaller, then that's a good thing. It means that uh, the weights are converging. So if you do a fast forward transform FFT, you and you did it manually and you calculated the weights, uh, you should get the the predicted out outcomes uh, based on on your uh, your fit. But uh, there's always the possibility that uh, you know you have to measure your variance, uh, how far from the mean it's getting, your solutions, um, and uh, also um, uh, looking to see if the what the bias is. And when you talk about bias, it means it's missing the target. So what was the target that you're trying to achieve? through the neural net and if if it's uh, missing the target then you know you've got a strong bias so uh, you have to come back to the net and uh, and uh, change uh, some of the topology and your data is not going to be the same either data is going to be constantly changing so your models will need to be uh, evaluated um, and there's no real automated way of just looking at a model and saying, yeah, it, it, it's uh, trained to satisfaction. There's, there's a lot of uh, validation, uh, pre-processing that has to go on with your data. Um, you have to set, get it regularized and um, those type of things, which, um, you know, they take time and take skill to do. So I'm not really sure how... Uh, if you talk to someone who's doing lots of neural net integration, they've made it to the AI ML production level in a company. Uh, that's quite an achievement in my mind. It's quite an achievement. And uh, even though everyone's racing to do some uh, machine learning aspect of their project in their company, it's quite an achievement uh, to, to get to that level. And uh, so one, one area where I talked about was uh, you know looking at customer retention and uh, using recency frequency and monetary to uh, analyze your customer trend buying behavior and uh, you know it's with re reoccurring neural nets it's probably possible that you could even do some time series predictions so you could feed in the patterns that the consumer or customer is doing and then predict what uh, when they will buy again based on their buying patterns and uh, possibly even what they what kind of categories or types of products that they will most likely buy based on the neural net prediction and uh, the way they did that in the coursework is they had a dark competition. So every uh, person in the competition throws a dart. And uh, in this case, it was multiple outputs. It's not multiple labels, but multiple outputs. And uh, they would throw a dart at the board and it, then they would record uh, the dart's X and Y position. And possibly even from the X and Y position, you can determine a, a score but that built a profile and so 
using those coordinates, um, they could identify a distribution per person of where they were throwing that dart and um, possibly even make a prediction of where they would throw in the future. And that's kind of an interesting idea is that, uh, you know, can neural nets see into the future? And, and we did talk a little bit about uh, ordinary differential equations and one of the uh, algorithms that was used to uh, the Sierpinski algorithm, which was used to calculate the height position of a flame eight, eight cycles into the future. And that's absolutely amazing that the neural net could uh, find signal in the way a flame was more burning because you would think that the flames burning would be chaotic. Uh, but even within chaos, there must be known functions because the uh, ability for it to predict into the future would suggest that that flame was not as random as we were led to believe. And that's one of the primary rejections of, of evolution that I have is that uh, I don't see this element of randomness in the world. I see that, uh, you know, you look at cellular automa, which was uh, simple algorithms that create complex structures. And they are matching to patterns that we see in nature. So the, those things, those patterns in nature were not random, but they had an element of programmability. And so the idea that I was listening to by Wolfram Alpha was, uh, Wolfram was, Stephen Wolfram was that, uh, that there is a possibility that you could program a algorithm for everything. Uh, then would that imply that the universe is a giant algorithm? But uh, I, I don't think the universe is a giant algorithm, but I, I do see that where he's going with that idea. And he's created uh, different, uh, different universes with some with matter and gravity and others not. And that was fascinating that those would be interesting to know if those theoretical structures could could be stable. Um, because I think that's the, the primary criteria of any complex system is stability. And so in one of my books uh, uh, that I wrote, it's a fictional book, is that the e-robots were uh, infected by a evolution virus. And the virus was planted there by the nefarious Dr. Talon, and his plot was to prevent the colonization of Mars for his own purposes. And uh, so when the initial V1 computer was being installed on the space station, he had um, managed to put in this virus. And so the e-robots are usually very helpful and to humanity and, and they help out Positron but uh, in this case uh, the evolutionary virus uh, has them starting questioning their existence and, uh, and their purpose 
And so, in a kind of a twist of irony in the book, um, they begin to dream of becoming half alien, half machine. And so, uh, Scott Harrison, one of the characters, laughs because he realizes that they've, uh, Dr. Talon has basically made little UFO men in flying saucers. And, uh, and he laughs at that idea. Uh, but for them, they have this question of existence of what their goal is. And, and uh, their, their algorithm was never to gain supremacy and, and then dominate and exclude the human race. But their goal was to be helpful to humanity. And, uh, and it was interesting how the uh, virus made them revolt. And still, instead of being stronger and smarter, they actually became more chaotic and more rebellious and destructive and destabilized. So one of the arguments that Scott thought of to convince the robots was a challenge. He challenged them to make a stable uh, artificial system and uh, using the principles of evolution and knowing that knowing that it would be an impossible feat for him. And through an act of the futility, they would see that the evolution virus was not true. And so it had a kind of a war game scenario where they, they were playing a game of tic-tac-toe and it realizes it cannot win the game. Uh, the, the Whopper cannot win the game. And so, uh, you know, he applies tic-tac-toe to thermal nuclear warfare and instead, at the very end, it says, uh, asked if he would like to play a nice game of chess. And chess is by no means a nice game. It's a, it's a combat-oriented strategic game. But uh, compared to thermonuclear warfare, which had no possible positive outcome, uh, chess at least would have a survivor and, and was considered nice by the machine. <laughs> So that's kind of my rant there, but uh, yeah, so this week was uh, pretty interesting. Looked at uh, looked at some data from the standpoint of using a swarm plot. Now that is a really great plot because uh, it kind of shows you a distribution quickly uh, over, in this case, I was wanting to see it uh, By, uh, I figured out that I needed to figure out in the data how to group things together. So I was looking for a way to group similar type of structures together. And I came up with an identity that I thought would work. And then I used that with uh, some values. And, and then I wanted to see if, if uh, the, what the distribution looked like. And so I put it into a swarm plot. This is a seaboard swarm plot. And it worked great. It, it, um, and I checked a few of the numbers to make sure that they really were distributing correctly and it was plotting correctly. And they were. And so it told me a lot of information really quickly about, uh, about a different, how certain values were being clustered together based on these entities that I had identified. And so uh, I, I think that uh, 
that that is a, a, a great tool. Another one that I really like is Scatterplot. Uh, Scatterplot uh, uses a uh, X and Y data set. But uh, in Seaborn, you can also control the color using data, and you can also control the uh, uh, size. And so that I, I also put uh, the same data set and was able to see uh, the size. I was looking at cost per square foot, and uh, I was able to see that that uh, for the want to compare total cost of the project against the cost per square foot, and uh, I could see the distribution, uh, but it didn't have a nice grouping, and so I did see that there was a ability to do what they call a rail plot, and. Uh, Rail plots were really good because you could take um, and and uh, you could take uh, the entity and put the the entity in there, and it would then show the, the distribution by the entity. Um, but the, uh, it, you know, I when you go back to looking at Python print reporting, I think it's a great analytical tool, but I don't see really how I could take that same tool and, and, and distribute it widely. And maybe that's my own error in thinking, but I, you know, I was, uh, I was thinking that this is a good tool for data scientists to communicate ideas and trends in the data, but it seemed like a hard tool to uh, put in a in a business environment and then run reports off of that that tool. Uh, so that that became kind of the dilemma is how do I take these these high power data science tools and uh, you know get them in get the data output into the form that can be used by business. And that's still a question I have to, to find out. Hopefully, someone who's uh, experienced in that area can also give me some insight. And uh, I, uh, you know, so, you know, just thinking about where I'm, I'm wanting to go, I want to get more into uh, looking for ways to build some level of prediction. I'm thinking that one area that might be useful is budgets versus actuals because there's a, a comparison here and you're comparing uh, one thing against another and making predictions and so maybe using the neural net to, in a time series to make a prediction about the future projected cost on a project that might be something where I could apply a neural net Another area where I was thinking uh, that neural net might be useful is to look at all the parameters on a contract and then uh, look at a new contract and look at its parameters and see if uh, it can classify or group it with a uh, 
pre-existing contract that's already either been completed or is in, in progress and then use that contract as a guideline so that uh, uh, that you get uh, a reasonable uh, reasonable validation based on historical performance and uh, you know I know that sometimes that they use you know they use different uh, unit costs to figure out different uh, uh, budgeted cost and uh, they itemize all that information together into spreadsheets but it seems like it seems like that's a very tedious and difficult process to constantly be recreating um, and then you don't really know you have to have kind of a, a sense for how to query up data to figure out projects that could be very similar in terms of scope and size and, and the materials that are used. And why not uh, train a deep learning net across all that data and then have it look at all the historical data and then give you a recommendation of like, uh, like projects. And uh, obviously, let's say you found a like project, but that project was 10 years old. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't use that project. So then you would have to probably trade within a certain time frame. So then you train your, you'd extract out your data and then have it trained for uh, an acceptable time frame. And then look at, look at those numbers. Another area that could be interesting is um, having the neural net analyze the terms of the contract and uh, be assessing and comparing it against what is actually happening. So look at the terms, see if there is uh, uh, variables that are changing that uh, are outside certain parameters and then alerting you to those parameters that uh, might be of concern. You know, so let's say you've got uh, you know, 8,000 variables in your, your contract that are in constant change. Um, maybe the thing is, is what you're looking at is just milestone values and guidelines and then you know, making projections. But what happens when your projections are grossly off and when your change orders are really high or something like that? What What is the root cause of so much churn on that aspect? Um, and, that's, and that might be some of the type of things that could uh, be analyzed to figure out what caused the variance, you know, what caused those trends to occur that way, you know, uh, was there shifts in the cost of materials where did the you know were there problems with the subcontractors things like that those are questions that uh, might be interesting to, to answer but uh, there's a constant uh, need for analyzing data and uh, that's one thing that I, I, I feel like whenever I'm 
getting bored and thinking, well, no, I know everything in the system. Um, I ask myself, do you understand the data? And um, do you have ways to know what, how the data is changing? And, and those are good questions because I start writing down questions that I want to try to, to, to figure out how to answer. And so I can set up my fact tables to answer those questions and, um, and then try to build the system so that I can visualize it. And whether that's in Python, using Seaborn or, or uh, other tools, um, use the tools that are, are, that you're familiar with and can help you understand the data is what I would recommend. Well, you know, and I, I sometimes I get uh, kind of bored with AI and machine learning and, you know, I start thinking about uh, uh, things that are more real in the sense of people. And uh, so this week I did a lot of talking about uh, uh, the way the mind works and also customer behavior, you know, just, you know, how does the customer think? And one thing that was interesting is the fact that customer trends don't uh, diminish immediately. Fats change quickly, but trends don't. So, you know, uh, I it used to be, for example, you would get a uh, when I grew up there, you get a Sears and Roebuck Roebuck uh, catalog in the mail. A bad you would. Those were the greatest uh, catalogs because um, you would study it carefully for the different styles of clothes, shoes, and uh, uh, if you knew your sizes, you could you could mail order your your uh, products in, and uh, and then they would arrive in the mail. Or uh, once you knew what was in the catalog, then you could go into the store and uh, make your purchase there. So there was a lot of comparison that went on uh, early with the, uh, the with Sears. And that trend lasted for a long time. Then when people, when the internet became common, uh, I saw early in the development of the internet that uh, students were spending a lot of time on news feeds and uh, sending email so that they would find someone that they needed to talk to and, and uh, through simple mail protocol, they would, they would uh, write a message or uh, read a, a news article online. And those were fantastic. I mean, they had these huge threads that, that uh, uh, carried on these intense conversations, you know. And uh, what that be morphed into is Stack Overflow. We have, now we have Stack Overflow where um, experts are commenting and uh, providing solutions and critiquing other solutions and you're getting good peer review. And the, and the quality is very on topic uh, so that the search engines then query and find these very complex uh, topics that are hard to solve but it seems to be always on Stack Overflow. 
and it's also true that that was somewhat uh, the same type of behavior that occurred in these news feeds is that there would be these discussions and then there would be you know uh, replies or rebuttals to those comments and uh, there was a large group of people that were reading that content but they did not displace newspapers or they did not displace the need for books now one thing that is really interesting about trend is when YouTube uh, became popular there was this huge amount of content that began to start to be created and people were publishing their content on YouTube and I remember in the early days of YouTube that some of my YouTubes I could monitorize. Now you have to qualify to monitorize your YouTubes. But I had uh, monitorized YouTubes at that time. And, um, but one of the things I saw with YouTube was that people were putting out a lot of content and it was good. It was entertaining. And so when you look at the amount of time that people spend on YouTube, whether it's for learning or entertainment, it is, I think, the second most widely uh, used media on the internet is YouTube. And it's just a, a great way of communicating. But the idea of self-publishing was really popular. So, um, you know, everyone is becoming an expert. And so different people are finding these experts and then they're subscribing and that uh, has a similar effect to the way the Google ranking occurs is as there's more popularity then the visibility increases and also the monetary uh, benefits for that recognition are also being realized and there's people that are making careers on YouTube. So, one of the things that uh, YouTube says is that you have to have good quality content. And they measure the quality of the content and, and, uh, and they also measure the amount of hours that are people are watching your content. So, did that trend, they had displaced the trend for reading. And uh, uh, according to how customers think, there's still a huge there still should be just as many or if not more books that are being printed every year. So if people are spending more time on YouTube, why are they still buying books? And I think that uh, the reason behind that is, is the books are a luxury for the rich and they are still the best way of transmitting ideas. I, uh, I spend a lot of time during the day, you know, listening to, uh, presentations on machine learning and, and artificial intelligence but I still have this strong desire to spend I think it's between 50 or 60 dollars for our book on Keras because I just don't feel like I, I've learned everything I need to uh, about Keras and I think that a book would be more thorough uh, when you look at the law the law is 
largely codified in text. And uh, LexisNexis has, you know, the law codified on machines, and machines have complex queries to find case analysis, to store cases, to retrieve cases. And um, yet, if you go into a law library, they have a combination of digital and books. So books are still very important, and, and I don't think that that trend will go away. Um, there was a, an interesting trend that um, was talked about for consumers in their homes, and that was the trend towards uh, eating out, that more people were spending money to uh, pay for dinner or lunch, and uh, those meals were delivered through either um, the restaurants that they purchased from or from Uber Eats or another service that delivered food. And the question then becomes, well, if people are eating out more, then uh, should they include kitchens in homes of the future? So maybe all you have in a kitchen now is a microwave and a sink. And you don't have a, a cooking aisle or a stove, you know, because those are all areas that waste space if you're always eating out. And maybe you have a small fridge, maybe instead of the fridge of a full-size fridge, you go with uh, uh, a half fridge where you can s store leftovers and uh, beverages in, the, in there without incurring much cost. And so again, saving square footage. But the it's interesting because uh, you don't, when you go into a home, these new fancy homes for the rich, they always have a big kitchen. They have a big kitchen, a big bathroom, a big master bedroom. Uh, and, and so there is a lot of money that is spent on that, uh, building those type of kitchens. Uh, one of the things that we like to watch is uh, how to use your space really well in small areas like in New York, for example. They have walls that will pull out, beds that fold down, tables that expand out, uh, work desks that open up, things that are embedded in the walls. But they always have an area where they can have kitchens where they can stage food, bring it out for guests. And, uh, and so it seems to me that it would be, it didn't follow that pattern. Even though there is an idea or a fad that's occurring, the trend towards eliminating kitchens didn't go, uh, occur. Now you might say, well, that there have been some things due to the industrial revolution that have, have uh, disappeared. For example, people that would sharpen scissors, uh, they, they would, you know, have a little cart that they would pull around and, and the people who needed their scissors would come out and they would sharpen their scissors. Uh, you know, you don't see those. What about the people who would fix shoes? You know, shoes have largely become disposable. Once your, your sole is wore out, you just go down and 
you buy a, another pair of shoes for uh, it used to be like $30 now you spend you know $60 $80 it's outrageous but uh, you dispose of your shoes and so but I remember when I was on my mission that uh, uh, there were places where you could take your shoes in and, and they would resole it for like $20 and so uh, I remember I had some really nice shoes that I really liked. They were really comfortable. We did walking. You know, we walked all day, knocked on doors, and, uh, you know, shared the gospel with people. And uh, but then I had a toll. I had a really hard strike on my heel, and uh, and so I had to put on a really thick sole, and I put steel taps on the back of my heel. And so I could save my soul. <laughs> Pun intended there. Uh, and uh, while I was walking around, I could hear those things clink. And it sounded kind of like a drill sergeant. And, you know, finding a place that repairs shoes now is hard to find. Uh, but, you know, those trends did slowly change over time. And, and uh, you know, I imagine if you went to a big uh, city like Anaheim, where I served my mission, that you could probably find a place that still fix, fixes shoes where uh, a business can survive. Now, another one is haircuts. You know, people uh, like to get their hair cut. You know, then you have the combination of salons, have a combination of, you know, just quick uh, haircutting, um, cheap cuts, you know, and and uh, but you know, they originally started off with the barber, and and then you know, people wanted to have certain styles of haircuts, and they wanted to have their hair colored, and they wanted to have a shampoo, and the, you know, there was certain type of specialties that came in. And those introduced kind of a fad, but I would say largely that they they still follow the the recipe of a barber shop, and uh, that trend didn't go away. It just kind of was rebranded or remarketed a different way. Um, well, you know, and and the other thing too is as uh, machine learning and AI become more commonplace more people start to understand it, uh, there, and there will be an increased surge in the amount of knowledge in that domain. And that creates a barrier between the end user and the person who has that knowledge. And, and I think you'll hear more of the question, just don't tell me how that works, just, just make it work, you know. Um, and, and that's just kind of that cautionary thing that there's a barrier that exists. And so, one way to overcome barriers is to be counterintuitive. You have to figure out ways to generate curiosity for the customer. You know, uh, why aren't more people buying self-driving cars? They're fantastic. You know, they. Uh, if I had a Toyota Corolla, I would put the uh, Coma Two in there, no doubt, and I would install the software and I'd keep the software upgraded. One thing I know, though, with any technology is it works fantastic while you're using it, but once you have a maintenance problem, 
it's very difficult to fix it. Uh, I have a robotic lawnmower. It worked fantastic when I had it running. It, it mowed my lawn. I never had to go out there and remow my lawn. It, it just kept it all um, even, and it was using a random pattern for for moving. It would wake up. It would go out and cut my lawn, come back and recharge. It was great. I loved it. And uh, and then one winter, my wife said, "Put away the cords." And it had a weird connector on the cord, and I. I took the cord off out of the power socket, and then in the attempt to uh, disconnect it, I was thinking that it unscrewed instead of pulled off, and they had this little thing where you uns unscrew it and then you pull it off. I tried to twist it, and then I ended up damaging it. And uh, so then I forgot about that, and I. I thought, well, what really I did when later on is I was looking at the cord and I forgot I'd cut that piece off and I was going to uh, put a new head on it and you know, I never got around to doing that. And anyway, so years went by and I think two years went by and I, I thought, I'm going to get that robot up and running again. So I went out and got the, I got a three prong socket from Grover's and, and I wired it up and, and uh, turned it on and all of a sudden there's white smoke in the transformer where on the recharge station. And I was like really upset that I had done that. And then later when I was digging through my uh, part stuff, I, I realized that I had forgot to put on this transformer, though that was part of the the piece of equipment that had uh, that I had uh, disconnected and put aside. So then I went to the works robot place, and I'm I was looking to see if I could buy another recharge station, and they had changed the way the robot recharged, and so that docking station no longer could be used. And uh, then I was thinking, well, I'm going to go on eBay and look to see to replace that uh, whole charging station with one from, uh, well, I'm going to say it was 2015 is when I bought it. Um, and uh, I couldn't find one. And so now I've got a robot, a perfectly good robot, but no way to charge it up. So now I've got to think, uh, I'm going to wonder if I can figure out what the voltage is and the amperage uh, on that recharge station and see if I can get a variable device that I can plug in in between then to adjust the voltage amperage uh, so I can recharge my robot. So my point is is that trends are going uh, and technologies are wonderful while they, they work fine but sometimes uh, uh, getting them repaired it will be uh, as simple as uh, just replacing the whole unit. Well, that's it for this week. It's time for karate. I'll talk to you soon.